Today's February 1st, 2021. GOP senators pitch a slimmed-down relief package. The vaccine rollout continues to hit hurdles. And Trump fires a few of his lawyers ahead of his impending impeachment trial in the Senate. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. Y'all, we have, I'm serious, on the 50th episode, the best podcast that we have done thus far in our podcasting journey. I know y'all are excited. I'm excited. I can't believe 50 podcasts in already. We're bringing you all the good stuff from the left, all the good stuff from the right, all the bad stuff from the left and the bad stuff from the right as well. But we're, of course... As always, y'all, doing our best to find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. As many of you know, we have a giveaway that's been going on on our Instagram and Facebook page. Please look there today. In the afternoon, we will be announcing the winner, the winner of that awesome $50 Amazon gift card, and of course, your very own Split the Difference t-shirt, so you'll have a little bit of swag you can wear around, advertising the best podcast that you know, and I hope that all of y'all have been entering in the in the giveaway because we got a lot of people entering, and it's going to be tough, but somebody is going to win. So also check out our Instagram because we got a great little 50th episode, uh, I guess a little video, fun little video that we put together for our viewers here. I think that all of you guys are going to get a pretty good laugh out of it. And with all of that, that of course leads us right into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, GOP senators try to pitch a slimmed down COVID stimulus package. So moderate Republicans sent Biden a letter yesterday urging him to slim down the stimulus package that he is planning on rolling out. It was signed by 10 or I think 10 more moderate Republicans. Like it was, you know, like Lisa Murkowski was on there out of Alaska. Mitt Romney out of Utah was on there. Pretty much all the people that were kind of in on the last COVID stimulus package that ended up getting pushed through. That was significantly less than a lot of what the Democrats hoped for, but also significantly more than a lot of the more more conservative, far right-wing Republicans, i.e. Mitch McConnell, were hoping for. That one passed last, I think, last in December. It was for around $908 billion. Uh, so now they are writing a letter to Biden to ask him to you know, trim down the stimulus package that he's wanting to push through right now so that they can go through and actually get a good deal kind of hammered out between the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, right now, the stimulus package that Biden wants to roll out and that he has talked very heavily about is sitting right around $1.9 trillion. That is with a T. trillion, and it has everything under the sun in it. I mean, it's got, it has, you know, increased, like, continuing to extend the rent moratoriums. It has the federal spending on, uh, you know, unemployment, extending the unemployment benefits. It also has raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which we talked a good bit about in one of our podcasts last week. Um, And... There's no doubt that if Biden goes to push that through, if the Democrats go to push that through, they will never get bipartisan support on it, right? And we'll get into a little bit more about how they plan on trying to pass it, but 
the goal of the Democrats right now is basically we want to slam this thing through as fast as we possibly can, get all of the stuff in it that we want, ignore the Republicans, increase that divide between the Republicans and the Democrats as much as we possibly can. And these moderate Republicans are like, please don't do that. That is not what we need right now. So uh, this is a totally Republican-led proposal that is kind of meant to helpfully bridge the gap between the two parties right now because where they stand on coronavirus stimulus is dramatically different. There are some Republicans that are coming out and saying that they don't want to have any stimulus package rolled out at all at this point because they think that there's already been enough relief that's sent out. And then there are Democrats that are saying that the $1.9 trillion deal is a good start. Okay? Those are very, very different (laughs) sides. So uh, they wrote in their letter to Biden, quote, We recognize your calls for unity and want to work in good faith with your administration to meet the health, economic, and societal changes of the COVID crisis. So it looks like in some ways they're kind of calling Biden's bluff, right? So Biden has gone on and on before coming into office that he wants to be a president of unity. He wants to be somebody that steps in, reaches across the aisle, tries to put a bridge between the Democrats and the Republicans so that everyone can come together, have some compromise, get some good policies pushed through that will hopefully help the constituents of both sides, whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat. And I think that their aim here is to basically kind of come to Biden and say, look, you've said that you wanted unity. You've said that you wanted compromise. We want the same thing. Let's see if we can actually get something done. We're tired of seeing the division. We're tired of seeing the strife just as much as you are and just as much as most of our constituents are as well. We think that if we work together, we can kind of get you know, the ball rolling on this, we can get stuff rolled out that would actually be beneficial to our country. And we can take the time to iron out the details and really get something good done. So Brian Deese, the uh, White House Director of National Economic Council, uh, told NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday that Biden is, quote, is open to ideas wherever they come. So, uh, Then he went on to say what he's uncompromising about is the need to move with speed on a comprehensive plan. So it seems like Biden is somewhat open to compromise and wants to lean in the more moderate direction, especially when it comes to economic policy. So what have we seen from Biden so far? So far in the, you know, two to two and a half weeks or so that Biden has been president, we have seen that he is clearly catered to the more progressive wing of the party thus far, okay? A lot of his executive orders have been very, very specifically aimed at appeasing and gravitating towards those far left, more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. You can see that a lot, especially with the social issues that he's done, right? So he's gone in and tried to attack you know, get his hands around like the transgender activism portion uh, that the progressive party is very, very passionate about Um, climate change. So he's already come in and talked a ton about climate change. He's entering us back into the Paris climate accords, which was a huge shtick on the left side of the aisle. Um, And, you know, a lot of the executive orders that he's signing and that he's talking about are clearly trying to like maybe rally that portion of the left because coming into it, a lot of the far left didn't really trust Biden and didn't really think that he was going to come in and do a whole lot for their specific prerogatives, right? Biden has all of his life been a more moderate Democrat. He hasn't been one of the far lefties. That's what won him the election. He ran on a very in the moderate lane of that Democratic Party. 
and absolutely swept the primaries and, of course, won the presidency because he was able to gather a lot more of those, uh, you know, undecided independent voters there in the center that thought that he would be more moderate and more unbiased than Donald Trump would be. Personally, I think that this is actually politically very, very smart. Okay, Biden knows that if he wants to and if he's going to get a lot of the economic policy pushed through that he wants to push through, which have so far been somewhat more moderate than a lot of the more progressives have wanted, he's going to need the full, I mean, unfettered support of the far left progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So he has very purposefully gone through and pushed a lot of the policy things that the far left wants, which are very, very, very heavily centered around more social issues. I think for Biden, his primary concern coming into his presidency actually isn't really social issues. Like he's almost like here, you know, if you want more help with transgender activism, I can give that to you. If you want more help on climate change, I can give that to you, right? But when it comes to economic policy, he's going to want to move in the more moderate direction, okay? He's not going to want to fully embrace all-out socialism like many on the far left want to do. He's going to want to try and structure his deals and his packages in a way that are going to kind of lean more towards the center because, honestly, that makes for better economic policy. So um, if he's going to be able to do that, though, he has to shore up the support from the progressives. He has to. If he doesn't have their vote, there's no way he's going to be able to pass economic policy, especially because it's not going to be far right enough for a Mitch McConnell or for a lot of the Republicans. Uh, and it might be too far right for a lot of the progressives. OK, so currently our country's economy is not looking too hot. Right. And you can see that in a wide variety of different ways. There was actually a super interesting article on the Wall Street Journal yesterday detailing the likelihood that we are nearing an economic bubble. And I know that you hear doomsday stuff come out about the economy all the time. Right. There's always some new article about we're at a bubble. Here's the impending crash. Here's what to do with your stocks right now. Why I'm pulling out of the stock market right in a second. Right. But actually tend to agree. Um, and it's because of how quickly the stock market came back after last year's initial decline. And then we've seen it waver a good bit over the past couple of days. Right now, the S&P 500 is currently 66% up from where it was at the, you know, the lows of the low last March when it crashed really, really hard at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, especially right now, real estate is finally kind of starting to stall, whereas through the entirety of the pandemic, up until around November to December, real estate had continued to go up. Prices had been going up, driven largely by sustained demand, but a huge decrease in supply. Nobody was listing their houses because of the pandemic. And right now, that's actually kind of starting to flatten out, all right? Starting to plateau. A lot of people in real estate are starting to see a slowdown in the amount of houses that not only are being listed, but also the amount of people that are wanting to go out and actually purchase new homes. So, Biden realizes this and he wants to make sure that he has the support of the far left when he's pushing that economic policy through. Far left economic policy, that incredibly Keynesian sort of economic policy. Well, honestly, it's not even Keynesian, right? Like Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Ilhan Omar, all of those far left progressives openly push outright socialism, right? They want to socialize healthcare, they want to socialize a lot of things in the country as much as possible, and have the government as the primary spender within the economy. They want to socialize a lot of stuff around climate change. They want to put heavy, heavy, heavy regulations on a lot of financial services institutions. And Biden realizes that if you do that, 
you're going to have a gigantic dent in your economy. It's going to cause your economy to shrink, right? So if he's going to push through decent economic policy, he has to make it more moderate, but in order to get it passed, he's got to have the support of the progressives. Um, this is a you know a very similar, like I was saying earlier, this moderate Republicans, it's a group that got, kind of structured together all the stuff that was in the previous spending package that was just uh, pushed through in December. And it looks like a lot of the stuff that the moderates are talking about is a good portion of the stuff that Biden wants with a few, subscri- few uh, subtractions. I think that they don't have the minimum wage in their uh, bill as well. But uh, they they want to be able to try and get something that's like just not a gigantic price tag, right? Like our country's national debt is continuing to go up. As a percentage of our GOP right now, our debt is higher than it's been since World War II, which is significantly high. We are in the middle of a world war. Right now, we're not in the middle of a world war. We're, of course, facing an incredibly immense and gigantic pandemic, but it's completely different. Um, so what the what they're trying to avoid, what these moderate Republicans are really trying to avoid is the Democrats' current approach of trying to get this through, okay? The current approach that Democrats want to apply to this is push the stimulus package through through a process called basically a budget reconciliation, okay? The reconciliation process is used to basically go through and update and change or alter the federal budget as it stands right now without actually having to pass a full spending bill, okay? This would mean that the Senate is not permitted to filibuster it, and it would only need a simple majority to pass. Okay, so the Democrats' main goal here is literally to cram it through as fast and as hard as they possibly can so that the Republicans do not have the opportunity to block them from getting it through. If they do that, this will, of course, infuriate the Republicans, and it's honestly going to make Biden look pretty bad because he's come out and said that he wants to be more moderate. And if the first thing that he does is get into office and pass an incredibly progressive stimulus package, going to kind of look like he was lying a little bit. So I think for the most part, this is kind of Biden's first real test, I guess, of his presidency and to see where he's going to line up on the spectrum. Is he going to be beholden to that far left progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Or is he actually going to stay in the more moderate lane, the lane that he ran on, the lane that actually won him the presidency, and the one that the vast majority of his constituents would like him to actually stick into, right? They don't want him to go far left. The vast majority of the country wants him to stay right in the middle where he says that he is and where historically I think that he's been. So, um, we'll have to see if he neglects compromise on this. I kind of had a hard time. I kind of have a hard time feeling like he will. Um, I think that if he starts working with a lot of these more moderate Republicans, they will definitely be able to slim down that bill a decent bit. And we'll probably end up seeing something similar to what was passed in December was somewhere around like a $1 trillion price tag. I don't know that that will actually happen, though, because a lot of the Democrats want to push through very progressive stuff and Biden will have to convince them that they don't need to do that going to be a tough sell. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's hop on in to our second story of the day, story number two. So for our second story, there are some new hurdles in the vaccine distribution. So as many of you know, the distribution of the vaccine has not quite gone as expected for the vast majority of the world. Many countries are having a very hard time getting the number of vaccines that they need, along with actually getting the vaccines to its citizens. At the current rate of vaccinations, okay, only 10% of the world will be inoculated by the end of 2021. One-tenth. That's only one out of every 10 people. That's not a whole lot. Only 10 countries 
are currently on pace to vaccinate one-third of their population by the end of 2021. That's not a lot. Not a lot of people. So a lot of this is very, very closely tied to the more wealthy countries, right? And it tends to be, per usual, that the wealthier countries, the countries that have a higher gross domestic product, that produce more goods and services, that are more wealthy, tend to be the ones that you know have a better vaccine distribution and rollout because they tend to have better global supply chains. However, there actually are a lot of countries that are developed, more first world economies, especially in Europe, that are really struggling with getting the vaccines actually into their countries and then distributed to their citizens. European countries are starting to close travel back up uh, into their countries. They're not allowing a lot of the hospitality sector to open back up. A lot of the service industries like restaurants and bars and leisure and travel are really taking a hard hit all over again. And New Zealand, who this country, I think for the most part, has kind of been held as the gold standard for how you should attack and curb a pandemic um, I came out and released, their prime minister came out and released just this past week that they're not planning to per, per, open up and permit travel into their country until 2022. So they are already planning on having almost zero travel into New Zealand for the next year. They've had travel closed down going into New Zealand for a while now. I think since around the beginning of 2020, and they're basically like, listen, it's been working for us so far. We're planning on getting these vaccines in as fast as we can, distributing them as fast as we can. However, we're going to stay shut off from the world because we don't want the coronavirus to come back into New Zealand and start moving across our our island the way that it had been. So um, some countries are tending to do a little bit better getting the hands into the vaccines of its citizens. I think that right now, the United States is sitting right around like ninth or 10th, I think somewhere in there. And in, uh, in terms of like the global benchmark for who's getting the uh, vaccines distributed out as the best, I think Israel is sitting at the number one spot right now. Um, but many are arguing that the pandemic will not fully go away for years because of other country, because other countries and those people will be more susceptible to it because they have not been vaccinated properly. As long as there are large swaths of populations throughout the world that have not been vaccinated or have not already contracted COVID-19 and, you know, obviously lived through it, there will always be the possibility of them traveling and carrying the virus with them. One of the biggest problems is that the facilities actually producing the vaccines can't keep up. As a result, there's you know very few vaccines that are expected to be shipped around the world. And a lot of these plants are basically like, listen, we're running at like 100, 110% capacity right now, and we can only produce but so much. Canada so far has received 70% fewer of the Pfizer vaccines than they planned for, mainly because of production lines and basically that caught snags, a bunch of different stuff that they're trying to work out to make sure that they can officially get or efficiently get the vaccine rolled out properly. And a lot of it, of course, is due to kinks in the global supply chain, which is incredibly complex, okay? Organizing, managing the shipping of these vaccines across the entire world, making sure that they're getting into the hands of the people that actually need the vaccines and can distribute the vaccines properly is very difficult. And it takes a lot of incredibly high, you know, highfalutin and complex analytics and logistics in order to make that happen. Many countries are now, as a result of a lot of these kinks in the supply chains, starting to update their forecasts as to when do they think that herd immunity based upon vaccine inoculation will actually be reached. There are some countries that are now pushing it out 
for years based upon the current vaccine vaccine production and inoculation rate. So what we're seeing is at the towards the end of 2020 when Pfizer and Moderna and BioNTech came out and they were like we've done it, we've gotten the vaccine, fastest vaccine creation in the history of all vaccines, we're crushing it. Let's get this thing moved out. A lot of people were looking around and they were like, cool, we're going to be able to get our country vaccinated within the next six to 12 months. Well, it's not looking like that's going to be the case. Then, you know, you have the problem, of course, of being able to get the vaccines actually produced, but then getting them into the hands of the people is tough, right? And you have to have people that are trained in order to be able to administer the vaccines. You have to convince people to go and get the vaccines, which is proving to be incredibly difficult in the United States. Um, and so they're running into a lot of snags. And what this could mean is that the coronavirus doesn't go away within the next year or even two years or maybe even three years, right? It could still be floating around four or five years from now and eventually get to the point where, you know, we're just opening back up and we're trying to have herd immunity because there's no other way to really get it out or get it done any faster. So the other big problem that many people are incredibly worried about is the fact that the vaccines actually don't keep you from spreading COVID, okay? Contrary to what many think and what a lot of people have maybe read that's misinformation, the vaccine does not stop the spread of COVID. It instead just keeps you from having a much more severe case. So the hope in the vaccine isn't necessarily to stop the spread of COVID completely. It's mainly to make sure that if you were to contract COVID, it's not going to kill you. They're trying to significantly reduce the number of people that are going into hospitals and, of course, the mortality rate of this. Uh, because, you know, there's very large concerns that the population, a large portion of the population may not have even received the vaccine, uh, you know, what's going to end up happening is you have a lot of people that are going to go out and they're going to get the vaccine and they're going to be like, sweet, I'm good to go now. I can go out and start seeing friends and family again. I can start going to bars and restaurants again. I can go back to church. I can go back to all of the activities that I was doing pre the pandemic. But those people may still be spreading the coronavirus around. And we don't have a vaccine rollout that is good enough yet to be able to get the entire population inoculated. So they're going to be spreading the coronavirus around, even though they are not susceptible to have an extremely severe case of it because they've gotten the vaccine and more people will continue to get it. Pretty scary stuff. So um, now there's a lot of people as a result of this basically pushing even harder to just open the economy back up so that we, hurt, we hit herd immunity much faster. One of the countries that actually may end up doing it accidentally is the United States. Uh, because of the extremely high infection rate here, we've got the, one of the highest infection rates in the entire world. It's absolutely blowing up in the United States. It is so hard, so far, you know, somewhat been proven. And if you get COVID one time, you're significantly less likely to get it again, and you're also significantly less likely to be able to spread it around. Many of people are saying, like, look, let's get the elderly vaccinated to make sure that they're able to survive it if they get it. But with the young people, let's open it back up. If they get it, they get it. You know, we're going to do our best to make sure that people are taken care of well, but we've got to get the economy running on full cylinders again because we just can't afford to do it anymore. So... Uh, by the end, middle to end uh, of this year, and may actually get to a place where the U.S. starts to, you know, get close to herd Im immunity because we've got the vaccines and simply because everybody's just gotten it, right? I mean, honestly, at this point, everybody knows multiple people that's gotten COVID and everybody is just kind of like, 
you know, you go out to parties and it's like, oh man, you know, wear, make sure you wear your mask. And they're like, oh, you don't have to worry about it. Me, I've already had COVID. And it's like, what? Well, it's probably because you're acting like this right now. So it's clear that COVID is not going away anytime soon. I would strongly suggest to just go ahead and continue to be buckled up and get ready for the next year or so because it's probably going to continue to spread. And if you're not able to get a vaccine, you're going to probably have to wait for a good while. So with all of that, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's hop on into our third story, story number three. So there's not a ton of news around this yet, but I did want to mention it because it is pretty important. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. So um, Trump actually fired about five lawyers off of his current staff uh, that we're going to be defending him in the impeachment trial that is going to be coming up on February 8th. So one week from today, it should start in the Senate. Uh, very, very interesting because a lot of people are looking at this and they're basically like, I don't know why they're going through on this. I don't think they're going to have the support of the Republicans. It really is just going to be a big show. I highly doubt that he's going to get impeached. Uh, there were actually 45 out of 50 Republicans that voted earlier in the week or I believe it was maybe last week, uh, that voted to actually not do the impeachment at all. But they, of course, were voted down. There were five Republicans that actually voted to continue with the impeachment. So that means if the five people, five Republicans that voted to continue with the impeachment uh, actually vote to impeach Trump, they're still going to need about 12 more Republicans in order to actually convict Trump in that impeachment. So uh, as of now, though, Trump decided to part ways uh, with five of his impeachment lawyers. Uh, Butch Bowers, Deborah Barbier, Barbier I believe, sorry, Barbier, maybe, um, basically, and former federal prosecutors, Greg Harris, Johnny Gasser, and Josh Hadwards. Okay, they left his defense team over the weekend on Saturday. Um, said the source said that they were calling it a mutual decision apparently the lawyers left over a difference in opinion on the direction of the defense's argument so what it sounds like is these lawyers were getting together and they were debating on the best defense for Donald Trump they couldn't come to a consensus and as a result five of the lawyers were like deuces they decided to bounce so um i think if i had to guess okay basically what trump wants as he wants to go in and he wants to make more more of a case that there are there was extended and strong election fraud that would be my guess right i think that trump is going to want to go in there because he thinks he's got the support of the republicans and it's going to be his last stand to be like I'm arguing before the Senate that there were huge election fraud uh, cases that happened all around the country. He's going to you know, use that as an opportunity to share his case, to get his word out there. And I think the people on the Trump team were like, that is a terrible idea. Strongly suggest that we don't do that. As a result, they ended up deciding to leave because that was pretty much what he wanted to do. With all of that, though, it is almost... 100% certain that Trump is going to be acquitted, okay? I think it has been incredibly beneficial for him to not be out in the ether of Twitter and Facebook tweeting a whole bunch of just absolutely ridiculous stuff. And I think that as a result, he's kind of gone away quietly. Like, not a lot of people are hearing about Trump right now, which is weird because that's all we've heard about in the media for the past five years, right? Um, there are, you know, they're going to need a strong support of Republicans in order to be able to get this passed through, right? In order to actually convict Trump and bar him from being able to run again, they're going to need 17 Republicans. I don't see them getting that. 
If they get they get in there and they have an incredibly effective argument against Trump and they're able to find him, uh, you know, not legally culpable, but they're able to prove that he incited that riot and that that was an impeachable offense before Congress, maybe they'll be able to get the support of the Republicans if they're able to convince them. But that is an extremely uphill battle that I highly doubt the Repu- the Democrats will be able to surmount. I don't know, though, right? I can't predict the future, but I would be very, very surprised if Trump got impeached right now. So with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and wrap up our show with a segment that will actually only be here through the month of February. But every Monday, I'm planning on reviewing interesting facts about black history in America. I think it's a good time as any to do it. So I want to go ahead and share an interesting fact about black history in America. So, little bit of interesting history about Black History Month. So, the celebration of Black History Month began as Negro History Week, which was created in 1926 by Carter G. Woodson. He was a noted African-American historian, scholar, educator, and publisher. It became a month-long celebration in 1976, right in the middle of the 70s, after the Civil Rights Act and everything, about a decade after that. Um, And the month of February was specifically chosen to coincide with the birth days of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Interesting stuff. I think that Black History Month is cool. We should absolutely celebrate it, and hopefully there will be some really cool, interesting facts that are coming up here on the next couple of Mondays of February. So with all that, that is the end of our show. Thank you for stopping in and for checking us out. Thank you for listening. As always, y'all, find me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. Remember, that's with one T. I'm on Facebook, Split the Difference, YouTube, Split the Difference, and of course, my website at splitthedifference.com. There you'll be able to find all the information you need about the podcast. Feel free to drop me a like, a heart, a subscribe, a five-star review. All of that stuff goes such a long way. And remember, hopefully in the future, if you did not get in on the giveaway that we did this time around, to be sure to get in on the giveaway that we do, I don't know, maybe for our 100th episode. Could be an even bigger prize as well. Never know. Only way to know about all that, though, is, of course, to follow me, follow me on all the different social medias. So thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Remember, as always, y'all, we're going to do our best to be level-headed. We're, of course, going to be reasonable and always split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.